welcome to episode 217 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, oh, brother. What's good? Uh, the latest episode of The Mandalorian, all of <laughs> the sweet announcements about cool shows coming out on Disney+. Plus. True. Uh, there's a COVID vaccine that should start rolling out tomorrow. True. Uh, it's the Lord's Day. I've got a really good, delicious chocolate peanut butter stout beer on my desk. Uh, I'm reading The Wonderful Works of God. I, I mean, I guess I could just keep going. There's lots of good stuff. Man, you did not disappoint with your answer there. <laughs> I was I prepared wanna, for you because you I always should do say, that That's true. I always answer. I always ask that question. I will agree with you that chocolate peanut butter is like an amazing and glorious combination of things. This by itself seems like that God is a beautiful, wonderful creator and brings together so many disparate, wonderful flavors into consummate unity. Would you agree? Mm -hmm. I agree. I concur. Like the Reese's peanut butter cup. Have we talked about this in this podcast? I think we have about like the, at one point about the proportions of which shape of the cup offers like the greatest balance between chocolate and peanut butter. Cause they make like a million shapes according to like the oh, seasons. Yeah. yeah. Like the, like the pumpkin shaped ones at, yes. at Halloween time. Those are just not good. <laughs> They're like too sweet. I don't know what it is. They actually make me like feel a little queasy when I eat them. Oh really? I mean, I still eat them, but they, they <laughs> make me feel a little sick. No, just the well, good old traditional, Reese's peanut butter cup is like the perfect proportion. It's an amazing and delicious candy. I'm not sure like what kind of peanut butter we're talking about there. Cause obviously it's not like exactly peanut butter, but still there's still peanuts in it. It's still amazing. Yeah. It's probably not entirely synthetic. No, it's probably not entirely synthetic. And actually where I live is like just a stone's throw away from like where they, I don't know if they make them here anymore. Exactly. But yeah, the company is here. Yeah, so, well, we've been to Hershey World together. That's true. That was true. the afternoon that the podcast was born. That's actually true. I totally forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. So in some ways, Candy was like the progenitor or like at least it was part of the Genesis process. It was involved in our discussions. We had a lot of candy true. that day. We did have a lot of candy that day. It's, have it's you had, I think maybe true. I've already asked you this, but... I know you were a connoisseur of Hershey's in lots of different ways. Have you had, and you also like Reese's. I do. It's my favorite candy. Yeah. I know that's your jam. Have you had the one where it's like the Reese's peanut butter cup stuffed with the Reese's pieces? No, that sounds interesting. I'll have to try it sometime. It's polarizing. You can buy it out here and you can buy like a, a one that's like as big as your face, basically like a pie size version of like the Reese's peanut butter cup. Yeah. But I've heard that, and you would know best, that the peanut butter in the Reese's peanut butter cup is different than the Reese's Pieces peanut butter. Not just the texture, but apparently the flavor. So yeah, hence I think why they can... I think the Reese's Pieces is sweeter than the, the peanut butter you get in a Reese's peanut butter cup. Apparently. Hence why you can jam them into one another and make a whole different type of candy. See, I'm kind of a purist, so to me that just doesn't seem... <laughs> You're not down with that? It seems like a... Like... Uh, un, I don't know, unholy. I, I don't know what it is. It seems, it seems unnecessary, and it seems like why? I, I don't know. I'll have to taste it to be sure. We'll do a live tasting sometime. We should do that. Here's the thing. I'm gonna. I'm. This is by me saying this. I'm about to put myself out in the open. I'm about to open myself up to this criticism. But what I, Uh-oh. where I really thought you were going with that is, I thought you were gonna make a Westminster and London Baptist confession joke. Out of that whole thing. 
I don't even know what joke I would have made. Never mind. <laughs> Something about sprinkles and dunking, probably. No, I wasn't even going there, oh. but actually that's not bad either. So there's lots of, let's just leave it up to the listeners. There's lots of <laughs> options there. Fill in your own joke right there. Something about trying to improve on something that doesn't need to be improved on. <laughs> yes, there we it was go. more like that. I yes. knew it was there somewhere. It had to, it had to be there somewhere. <laughs> oh, that was great. Well, I think it's seems- more like when you get some other off-brand peanut butter cup and it's it's sort of like the the real thing but oh, it's not man. quite as good why that's what? probably more like the the london baptist confession. what is that cup like there, is there a hydrox version of reese's peanut butter cups I, I can't think of one i mean sometimes you get like a reese's peanut butter cup that's like in another candy thing and it's like a peanut butter cup but it's not it's not a reese's peanut butter cup kind of like it's i mean it's a confession but it's not the westminster confession <laughs> wow you did this to yourself, brother. I know. I did admit that. Well, this seems as good a time as any is to just move on and get into some affirmations and denials. Yeah. Well, this gets I, more at a hand. I'm only affirmations today. So right, speaking of uh, amazing reformed confessions, we are welp- welcoming, welcoming, welcoming. I can't even talk today. We are welcoming a new show to the network. Uh, the podcast is called Guilt, Grace, and Gratitude. And I'm excited because, you know... One of the things that we're trying to build with the Society of Reformed Podcasters is kind of a a broad reformed podcast society. And so we want to have shows that represent kind of all of the different uh, flavors of reformed theology. So right. our show is kind of a hybrid. You know, we've got some shows that are really more Baptist oriented. Um, you know, we've got the Bobcast, which is a particular person in sort of three forms of a unity land. The Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast really is a podcast by uh, people who hold to the three forms of unity. And it really is a three forms of unity podcast. So I'm excited to welcome them on. And, you know, I've said for a long time, we really need to get like a good technical 1689 podcast, um, kind of that space that according to Christ used to fill. Um, we really need somebody like that. We need a show like that. So I'm excited that they're coming on board this uh, season. They've got really sweet um, interviews all lined up. They did an episode with our Scott Clark, uh, or as we affectionately like to call him, <laughs> Reginald Scott Clark, uh, on uh, basically like the Reformation, the history of the Reformation. They just did an episode with Mike Horton on justification. Uh, they've got their whole lineup. It's pretty sweet. So check it out. If, you've, if you are a subscriber to the Mega Feed, uh, then you already have all their episodes. Uh, but otherwise, check it out. It's really great stuff. Um, they're doing really good stuff. They're both Westminster uh, students, so they're they're still kind of in the prime of theological vigor right now in seminary. Uh, so I'm excited to bring them on board. Yeah, they're both Reese's Pieces. They are. They're, oh, no, the, they're the real they're the, peanut butter cup. They're the peanut butter cup. Yeah, sorry. It's the peanut butter cup. Yeah, let's, let's yeah. make that distinction clear. We haven't said this in a while. We probably should just reaffirm that if you go to reformedpodcast.com, you'll find all of these wonderful episodes, but also what's the best way for people to search for it and find it in their podcast catcher of choice. If you just look up society of reformed podcasters, uh, you'll find it. It's got that beautiful original black and white logo with the microphone and the headset, uh, that I think was originally a placeholder logo and we just never got around to replacing it with something real. <laughs> but once you're branded, you're branded. Works um, great. Yeah. If you look for that on the uh, website or on, on any podcatcher, you'll find it. I think there's like 700 episodes at this point with all the different content. I think we're up to like 11 or 12 shows. 
Uh, so yeah, we're, we're super excited to keep growing. I joked the other day that I'm playing uh, reform podcast Pokemon and I've got to catch them all. So <laughs> if you start a reform podcast, oh uh, it's not going to be long before I find you and catch you. So <laughs> you might as well just reach out to me when you're ready to start. We'll get you going. That sounded like a threat. I wish I could riff on that with you more if I understood more about Pokemon. I feel like Pokemon is the last frontier for you in terms of nerd culture because you're quickly catching up to me. I'm trying. I'm trying my best. So one of the right, other well, what are you should, affirming? Well, one of the things I want to just jump on your affirmation for a second. One of the things we should say we haven't said in a while is just how much we appreciate those that give financially to our podcast. And yes. there are those that give every month very faithfully to help us cover our costs and to make sure that we don't have to worry about a lot of the incidental expenses, which yeah. we used to pay out of pocket, honestly. Yeah. So it's, it's just wonderful to have brothers and sisters say, we affirm what's going on here and the encouragement that's provided. So thank you for those that yes. give. And if anybody is interested in giving, of course, like your first responsibility is to your local church. But if, in, if after seeking the mind of God and giving to your local church, you decide you'd like to give to us, we would be, of course, so grateful and thankful for you to do that. You can just go to reformbrotherhood.com and there's a little link in the upper right-hand corner to Patreon, which is who we use yes. to help us facilitate that. And we are appreciative for any gift that you might give to us because it does make a difference. It helps us cover a lot of the costs and make sure like, the, I, I thought about this recently, like it's true that like free podcasting is the best. Like everybody should be able to have access to information freely. You've received freely. You, you should give. And yet at the same time, like we've talked about, if you've ever listened to a podcast episode and we have had them where the quality is awful, there's yes. like, it's just such an awful thing to have to listen to. So we're thankful those who have given to help us make sure that we can keep the quality of like the highest level. Yes. There was that episode where it sounded like you were podcasting from the international <laughs> space station. I never did quite figure out exactly what happened. You said something about playing around with settings. And yes. I was, it was, I wasn't that was sure. my fault. That was totally my fault. Uh, I, yeah, that was just, that's just not even a really great story. Just my fault. Jesse did offer to send me the original version of that file, and I declined because it was so funny <laughs> to have the the weird echoey space station version of it. Uh, it was great. So in terms of affirmations, here's what I'm affirming this week, and it's just a redux or a reprise. I'm coming back to something, Tony, that you affirmed. It was an application that I downloaded. Then it sounds like you promptly stop using, but for some reason I kept using and I found it to be really, really awesome. So I'm coming back to it for a second. And that's is this application called Strides, ah. which you can download, I think both if you're iOS or if you're Android, but all it I is, so, yes. and I, I would say like all in quotation marks, cause there's a lot more than this, but it's just a way you put in things that you want to accomplish on any kind of regular schedule, whether it's every day or weekly or whatever. And then you just, check them off when you accomplish yep. them. Now, I realize that sounds like, why can I do that in any number of other ways? You certainly can. But I love, one of the things I really like about this, having used it now for, I think like well over a hundred days actually, is that the reporting on it is super sweet. So like yeah. you get a sense for like how good you are at accomplishing the things that you want to do and how successful we've been at trying to build really good habits. So I've used this for things like scripture memorization and for, I have to do like a lot of studying for things I'm working on right now for like flashcards, stuff like that. It's just a great way to kind of keep you accountable. But the joy is in being able, of course, to look at your results over the past and see like how successful you've been. So it's, it's a great tool to help encourage you, but it's also a really great tool if you love a little bit of data in your life and you want to see how good you've done. There's, you know, there's one thing, there's a lot of things that I know about you, Jesse, but if there's one thing that I know about you, it's that you love a good graph. You love that a good, true. you love that a good graph true. that communicates actual information. 
uh, and you love a good metric. So I, I can see how you would dig that. Yeah, I, I used it for like a day and I was like, this is too much work for me. <laughs> I, I'm one of those people that downloads an app and gets all excited about it. And then I then I use it for a couple days and I get bored with it and move on to the next thing. I literally downloaded a new timeline tracking app and then I stopped using it like two days later. So it's <laughs> just none of the none of the apps I find are exactly what I want, but I'm not smart right. enough to make my own app. Right. I'm with you on that. I think we talked about how we share that. We're always out for like the next yeah. big thing. What's the thing that's gonna like perfectly suit us? And this is pretty good for for like again, trying to just to track yeah. different activities. You're absolutely correct because right now I'm working from home, my wife is working from home. She came home. She came home. She came downstairs. She works upstairs. For me, that's like her coming home, apparently, because <laughs> she works upstairs. She came downstairs and I was in the midst of working on something. I just said to her, I was like, man, do you ever just like put together a graph and you think this is a beautiful chart right now? It like it is such a glorious narrative. And she's like, we are so different. <laughs> Yeah, but Jesse, you know that you and I are kindred spirits on this because it is not unusual for me to send you a graph That's true. that I'm working on for work with zero real context just to show you how pretty it looks. That's and true. then I have to spend like forever explaining to you what the graph actually represents and what the different metric That's points true, are. That's true, because I get like super interested you in do. it and then <laughs> try to analyze it. And, yeah. Which to say, I don't know if we were going to go here or not, and time already eludes us, but... I was so happy that this week you texted me out of the blue and you said the question was all about statistics and permutations. I was literally on the couch like, this is the greatest text I've ever received from Tony yeah. in my entire life. It like, it like distracted you from your studies for the entire it was, night. It was so great. I, I love that. So do you have a denial or are we just all affirmations today? I'm all about the positivity today. All right, we'll go. Do you have anything else or is that it? Hmm. No, I think that's good. I'm affirming yeah. Jesus. Wow. Yeah. Well, tonight specifically we're segment. affirming the Holy Spirit. We are affirming Segway. the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that was Segway Master. <laughs> and if you've been tracking with us, this is actually the third in a series where we've been talking about the Holy Spirit, his work in regeneration and sanctification and the benefits of the Holy Spirit. And I think because this series ended up being impromptu, we started with one episode. Yes. And then one turned into two and then two turned into three because that's how theology works, loved ones, that this may be the end, but it may just be the beginning. We don't know. We'll see what happens at the end of this. But we're we've been talking really, I think, about the chief work of the Holy Spirit and then how we understand that in the whole con grand context of salvation and sanctification. And we've covered a lot of ground, so I hope people will go back and listen to those two previous episodes. But by way of, of some preface for like this conversation, we've talked a lot about the Holy Spirit as being the chief worker in faith with union with Christ. Yeah. And that the Spirit is the bond of union. And Paul teaches that people who do not have the Holy Spirit do not belong to Christ. And that implies that that union, belonging to Christ, is essential for salvation. So the Holy Spirit is not just a byproduct or is not just like a passive element or a passive worker in this. He is essential to what's happening. And that part of the reason why I think we tend to, I would say, pass over him is because he works with such humility. There's, we talked about last time, a condescension in the great work of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul ascribes to the Spirit's work aspects of salvation that occur in union with Christ. And those include things like regeneration, justification, adoption, sanctification, preservation, glorification. The spirit is the bond of union with Christ and people who lack the spirit do not belong to Christ. 
So the Spirit brings about aspects of salvation that occur in that union. That's like the quick and dirty summary of, I think, where we've been so far. Right. And now we're kind of drawing this all just like kind of like grand and glorious conclusion as we try to process what that means. Yeah. And so, you know, it's important to remember you, you can parse out the Ordo Salutis, which is kind of how we're structuring this series is the different, the different steps of the Ordo Salutis and the, the role that the Holy Spirit plays in each of those steps. You can parse out those steps in a plurality of ways. And, and some of them, you know, you can get really nitty gritty. You can subdivide and then subdivide again. Um, and we're really focusing on kind of like the broad big points. And I wanted to read this quote from Bavink because it it really, um, you know, every time I think that I've got like a really good, brilliant theological thought that I've that no one's ever had before, uh, God immediately humbles me by by just someone 150 years ago said it better than I ever could. And here, here's what Bavink says, and this is in his chapter on wonderful works of God on the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he's talking about how there are there are different benefits which the believer uh, gains from their relationship with Christ. And he says there's three major benefits, uh, three major groups of benefits that can be defined. In the first place, there's a group of benefits, and I'm quoting now, which prepares man for the covenant of grace, introduces him into it, and gives him the ability on his own part with a willing heart to receive the blessings of that covenant and to accept them. These are the benefits of calling, regeneration in the narrow sense, faith, and repentance. A second group comprises these blessings, which change the status of man in God's sight, free him from guilt, and also renew his mind. These are particularly the benefits of justification, forgiveness of sin, and adoption as children in the testimony of the Holy Spirit with our spirit, freedom from the law, spiritual liberty, peace, and joy. And in the next place, there's a third group of benefits, and these introduce a change into the condition of man, redeem him from the taint of sin, and renew him according to the image of God. To this group belongs especially regeneration in the broader sense, and dying and being raised with Christ, the continuous conversion, the walking in the spirit, and the perseverance up to the end. All of these benefits are perfected and completed in the heavenly glory and salvation, which God prepares hereafter for his own. So to boil that all down, Herman Bovink already came up with this series and he had it encapsulated <laughs> in a chapter in a book that he wrote 120 years ago. Right on. So this is not new theology that we're doing here. This isn't new, uh, a new way of looking at things per se. I'll be honest, it's a newer way of looking at things for me, which just reveals how much more I have to learn, which is both terrifying and also really, really exciting at the same time. But to break that down, where we are in this kind of progression here is we're now at the point where we've we've gone through that first group of things that kind of prepare someone for the beginning of their Christian life, right? right. He, he talks about preparing them for entering into the covenant of the grace. They're brought, they're brought back to life and regeneration. They're given a sense of the, the, uh, the, the negative aspects of their sin. They're given an awareness of their estate of misery to use the Westminster's language. Um, we're kind of sort of through the beginning of that second part where we're talking about how the spirit unites a person to Christ, which is where all of these benefits actually come from. And we're going to wrap out the series by talking specifically about justification, uh, sanctification, and glorification. And, and it bears saying that a lot of what we're going to say about each of these different things ends up being kind of similar because right. the grand scheme of it is that Christ first gained these benefits in a different way than we do. Uh, they mean something a little bit different when we talk about the justification of Christ or the sanctification of Christ or the glorification of Christ. But his justification precedes ours and then becomes ours, 
right? right. That's really important. To, and, and Bobbink makes that same point earlier in the chapter. Actually, I'm going to pull it up and quote it. He makes that same point. And what he says here, um, he says, this fellowship with the person of Christ, which he, the whole beginning of this chapter is explaining how the spirit brings us about. This fellowship with the person of Christ brings with it the sharing in all his blessings and benefits. There is no sharing in the benefits of Christ unless we share in his person, for the benefits are not to be separated from the person. And then he goes on to say, conversely, there is no fellowship with the person of Christ without sharing in his treasures and benefits. And so so this, this idea... And, and it's funny because this came up almost on accident when we were talking about the Lutheran view of justification in the episode on the Lutheran view of the Lord's Supper. The central feature of Reformed soteriology is, in my estimation, is the fact that the benefits which we receive from Christ, Christ himself had to earn first. Right. So his justification, he earns by his own merits, and then he gives them to us by his grace. His sanctification, he earns by living a righteous life, and then he gives us that by faith, right? He was glorified in the last day, or he will be finally glorified when when all of his people are resurrected, and he, he takes ownership over the earth and reforms it. His glorification prefigures our own, and so we can't ever think of our own justification, sanctification, or glorification separately from the fact that our trailblazer, right, the the book of Hebrews talks about him as a trailblazer, the person who kind of built the path for us before us. We can't separate those benefits from the benefits he earned and then gives to us through union with him. If we lose that, then we're no longer really in the realm of Reformed theology, if you ask me. Right. Yeah, that's well said. I mean, there's something that makes me, that there's like an a priori or logical appreciation for what God does in redemption. And some of that, I think, is so, uh, I'm going to criticize myself, like so blasphemous to say, because it's like, how dare we try to provide some kind of critical analysis to what God has done here? We are just the clay. Right. And yet... I think there's something beautiful in that we can appreciate the beauty of like the logical way in which God brings us about, because I think what we're trying to generate is some appreciation for the fact that Jesus in his work, he is so, so much the second Adam that he's so much the fulfillment of what God originally planned that he comes in a sense under the covenant of works and earns everything, everything that Jesus acquires, he earns for himself. And then as if that were not enough, he redeems all of what we are not by allowing us to participate in what he has earned and almost not even just participate, but by being able to claim for ourselves by the Holy Spirit through the power of Christ, what he has earned. Right. So that is amazing. And when you think of it this way, there's, there is a separation. It's not just about like the economic responsibilities or duties underneath the Trinity, but the fact that of the matter is that Jesus Christ comes as truly man, truly God earns essentially everything. And still there is, even as he earns it, there is no way for direct application to us unless the Holy Spirit comes and literally resides in us and therefore applies and makes efficacious what Christ made efficacious. He applies the efficaciousness, if that's a way of saying it, into our own lives, into our own attitudes, into our own thinking, into our own behavior. But that must come from the inside out. It's transcendence coming into the internal place and changing us. And that must be by way of, it's a spiritual reality. And so therefore it must come by a spirit or through the spirit in our case. So it's just this amazing, I think every way you turn this around, 
you see that God is glorious in the way that he brings about salvation and in the way that he is able to apply it into our lives that is at the same time honoring the sacrifice and the effort of Jesus Christ. And at the same time, in a way, able to redeem his creation, which necessarily must have prerequisites in order to come into this communion, into this covenant, which God himself has promised. He's both the great promiser, like we talked about before, he is the just in the justifier. And this is the way that he does it. It's all logically consistent. Even with what we we can comprehend with our tiny little brains, it is logically consistent and it's consistent on a cosmological level that's even far above what we can possibly understand. Yeah. You know, in a lot of ways, I know you love a good financial metaphor. I do. In a lot of ways, and we talked about this a little bit last week, you know, Jesus Jesus writes the check, right? He's the one that he's the one that fills up the bank account and he writes the check which purchases us out of out of damnation, right? Right. It's the Holy Spirit uh, in this metaphor, who takes that check to the bank and says, this this payment is for this person, right? He's the one that applies that salvation to our account. So when we talk about justification, we often, you know, we, we're talking about the imputation of righteousness. We're talking about Christ. Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness and our sinfulness is imputed to Christ. And then that's taken care of on the cross. So Christ bears the punishment that we deserve. And we, we bear the reward that he earned that exchange that's applied to us by the Holy spirit. And so that that's where I think a lot of, um, a lot of evangelical theology, as much as some of our Pentecostal brothers and sisters who I think love the Lord Jesus Christ are committed to him and, and follow him and trust him and are saved people. A lot of that theology is very anemic um, because it, it relegates the Holy spirit to this sort of auxiliary thing. Right. Right. If you think about the way that, um, you know, we've been critical. Uh, we did an episode with your friend Ben LeClaire early on about kind of this two-stage or two-phase uh, salvation, not in the like federal vision two-stage salvation way, but in this idea that there's kind of first-class and second-class Christians. There's the first-class Christians who confess Jesus, they're justified, they're gonna not they're not gonna go to hell, but they don't really live the full life now. For that, you have to have the Holy Spirit. Well, what that does is it relegates the Holy Spirit to this sort of unnecessary part. Yeah, it'd right. be great. It's a great benefit to have, but like you don't have to have the Holy Spirit. You don't have to be sanctified. You don't have to do any of that hard stuff. You just the have upgrade to upgrade package. Right. Exactly. Like you can get by with the basic cable. You don't need the upgrade cable. It relegates the Holy Spirit to this like auxiliary place. And a proper understanding of the fact that the the Father decrees salvation and all of the all of everything that that means, the Son accomplishes salvation and all of everything that means, and that is the Spirit that applies that, a proper understanding of that pulls the Holy Spirit back to the shared center of gravity of salvation, right? right? It really allows for our, our salvation, our soteriology to be a fully old Trinitarian theology rather than this sort of like weird binitarian theology with this like Holy Spirit add on, which is what unfortunately a lot of the, the charismatic Pentecostal traditions, as much as they want to sort of seem to be like this theology of the Holy Spirit that puts the Holy Spirit front and center, what it does actually is it just sort of like pushes him out to the side. It sort of makes right. him this weird extra topping on the the salvation pizza that you don't really have to have. 
And I'm just loving all the different metaphors. So I, I'm excited that we're looking at this because I think we all have a tendency, whether we like it or know it, we all have a tendency to do that with our theology. Even like um, the differences in the way we understand the covenant of redemption, right? There's the right. so-called Christological way to understand the covenant of redemption, which kind of formulates the the, the pre-temporal covenant as a covenant between the Father and the Son, and it sort of it sort of excludes the Holy Spirit, and it doesn't do that intentionally. It's it, the strength of that view is it's trying to trying to locate the covenant of redemption as an economic function of God, not as an ontological function of God. Right. And so it's a it's a it's a covenant between the mediator and the and the Father as kind of as God simply versus the 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 mediator as a human representative even before the incarnation. Well, that's that's good, and I actually think that's probably right that we conceive of it that way. But the weakness of that view is there doesn't seem to be much of a role for the Holy Spirit in that. Right. So we have to be co- constantly aware and conscious. And like we said early on, on one level, I'm okay with that because the Bible does that. Not not it doesn't exclude the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is perfectly satisfied. It seems to point to Jesus, to point to the Father. It seems like he's totally okay with that. The way that the scriptures are inspired really point that direction. So if our theology simply reflects the proportionality of the scripture in reference to the Holy Spirit, I'm okay with that. But we have to be careful not to go further down that road than the scripture already does. Right. And I think that's where helpful study in this nuance is really brings us great joy and great blessing in our Christian walk because in deference to lots of, like say, mainstream evangelical kind of lines of thinking that somehow push, like you're saying, the Holy Spirit to the margins, I think we're all guilty of this. When we realize that, often what we do is we try to pull back in and we try to overcompensate. And I think actually my greatest critique is where we try to overcompensate, which is there's right. lots of been there's lots of ink that's been spilled on how the Holy Spirit's been forgotten. So what we need to do is pray more for this indwelling because there is this kind of second or higher level, and that's where the Holy Spirit does enter into the Christian life. And we're saying, no, no, it's far more earlier than that. It's actually in every work of the Godhead is the Holy Spirit present. And so there's a failure to appreciate that the Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life in every work of the Godhead. So that happens both at the start of our relationship with God and with Jesus Christ, his son, and also this very day as well. But we tend to emphasize this very day at the cost of what happens in the beginning, what is the progenitor of our understanding of justification and sanctification. So when we think about it, even when we just look at the scriptures, it's not like just at Pentecost, it's at creation. It's like the second verse of the Bible, right? Where we meet the Holy Spirit in scripture. He's hovering over the waters of creation, making the Father's speech meditated or mediated by the Son to bear its intended fruit. The Spirit is the divine person at work within creature reality to shape it and vivify it. That's just in Genesis 1. And so I think if we can get to the point where that really sets our context for how we understand the spirit, we're much better off because from that point on, there's basically an expansion or a continuation, a continuous work in the life of the Christian that is the Holy Spirit. The spirit breathed life into Adam. It was a source of physical animation. And then since then, the spirit like leads Israel through the Red Sea to the promised land with the pillar in the cloud. Throughout biblical history, the Holy Spirit is engaged in judgment and power, leading his people by type and shadow to hope in the messianic seed who restore Adam's failed trial and enter the Sabbath consummation with his people in his toe. The spirit hovered over the waters of Mary's womb. And in this season we're, we're quoting and the angel answered her, the Holy spirit will come upon you 
and with power, the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child born will be called Holy, the Son of God. That's Luke one thirty five. So it's this context that I think we're trying to draw people back to. It's just funny to me how we course correct, but it's almost like it's not that we course correct in the wrong way. Is that we don't go deep enough into our understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Mike Horton makes the point in uh, Rediscovering the Holy Spirit. He makes the point, and, and in other areas too, he makes the point, and I think it's the same one we're trying to make, is that when we try to bring the Holy Spirit back to the center of our theology, we often do so in a way that actually uh, minimizes his role. Right. Um, it's it's kind of the same the same reason. I don't remember exactly when it was, but I came to this realization that, you know, sometimes people put like continuationism uh, and cessationism on this spectrum. And the idea is like cessationism is like practically deism, right? God, God does his thing and then he just leaves us alone. And continuationism is the, that's the theology where God's actually really involved. But in reality, continuationism is more like deism than it is like Orthodox Christianity. And what I, what I mean when I say that is in Orthodox reformed Christianity, not only is God involved in the miraculous things, he's intimately involved in everything, whether it's miraculous or not. And so it's as far away from deism as you can possibly right. get. It's literally the opposite of deism. Yes. Yep, where right continuationism, on. what it does is it actually ends up being just deism with a little bit of miraculous intervention. The watchmaker has to come in and tweak the watch every once in a while, but other than that, he mostly leaves it alone. That's continuationism or charismatic theology. And that's what we have to be careful of in our theologies. We have this tendency in our understanding of salvation or in our understanding of creation, in all of those things, we have us this tendency to think about the Holy Spirit in those terms, that the Holy Spirit is only involved in these miraculous ways, right? We think about the book of Acts and we think about um, you know, you think about the the random Christian who became a believer that isn't even recorded in the book of Acts, right? They just heard the gospel and believed. And then we have like the Philippian jailer who had this miraculous experience where the jails opened up and, you know, Paul, Paul converts right. him, right? The Holy Spirit is just as involved in the conversion of the rando who doesn't get any sort of any sort of mention in Acts, who just heard the gospel and believed as he is in uh, the conversion of the Philippian jailer or the conversion of, of someone on the day of Pentecost. There's right. the involvement of the Holy spirit is not greater or lesser to any degree in those. And that's, I think, I think if you boil down this series, what we have to come to, the Holy spirit is intimately involved in every single moment of every single thing. And perhaps in a special way in all of the moments of every person's salvation, whether it has a miraculous story or, a, I was a gangbanger and I killed 50 people and then I found a Bible and came to Jesus, or I was raised in a Christian home and I just don't ever remember a time where I didn't love Jesus. The Holy Spirit right. is no more involved in any one of those conversion stories or Christian testimonies than he is in any other. And that's the central point of this series. Yes. The Holy Spirit does it from start to end. And that is to say that when God saves someone through the Holy Spirit, that is a miracle. It's right. always a miracle. In every way, it's a miracle. And I think we belabored that point of Paul speaking very explicitly about how the meta, like Paul is not a dumb guy. So like when he uses metaphors that say like the, the person is dead, he, right. he's not meaning that there's something on their own volition that they're able to manufacture and somehow come with 
open, empty hands and to receive this gospel, this good news message that all they needed was just something to reach out and grab as if like a life preserver just needed to be thrown to them. They're absolutely dead. They need to be resurrected and regenerated. That is a miracle in every conceivable way. The human heart is so hard. People are so stiff necked that really for there to be any kind of turnaround of any kind of degree of any magnitude is a miracle of epic proportion all the time, full stop. And so that's what the Holy Spirit does. And then yet above and beyond that, he's also doing extraordinary work in ordinary ways. Like I think one of the ways you could, you people could describe the podcast we have is like ordinary means, because we always talk about how this is the way God works. And the reason, the, the capability of God to do extraordinary things through ordinary means is because the Holy Spirit, who has his extraordinary power, is transforming these ordinary means to be something beyond what they seem on the face. Yeah. So we sometimes fail to appreciate that the Holy Spirit works through creaturely means with extraordinary power and influence. Right. And we see this, again, over like his brooding of the waters to make them fruitful. You know, the Spirit didn't work against nature in the incarnation, but he was above it. And so the eternal Son assumed our full humanity yet was without sin. So the Spirit works through means in our lives now, through things like preaching and water and bread and wine, all stuff we talked about. The Spirit's work is often ordinary. It's it's sometimes extraordinary, like in the case of incarnation, yes, but the Spirit was just as involved in the ordinary process of Jesus's gestation and growth into a mature young man. And so he not only regenerates us through the gospel, but he also brings forth this fruit of the Spirit in our lives in ways that are often imperceptible through a process of gradual growth. And we should rejoice in these things. Like this is what makes Christianity so phenomenally different and set apart from any other worldview or religion that God himself not only condescends to live and work and be among us and to redeem us in that capacity, but then sends part of himself to transform us in such a way that we are radically different. Yeah. And that that transformation is like part of like it's involved in the cereal that we ate this morning and in the conversation that we're having right now that he's so intimately involved. Like I love what Paul says, speaking of financial metaphors, when he says the spirit is your down payment. It's how you know you've been secured. It's the performance bond. It's been what's set upon you to emphasize that God owns you now and that he's intimately involved and interested in who you are. When you make an investment in something and now you have quote unquote skin on the game, no pun intended though we could use it here we see that there's a different type of ownership and interest and responsibility and accountability. And that's what God has done for us. And that's unequaled in all of history. So when even Moses looks ahead, when even Abraham looks ahead and they say like, what God is like this, who who comes and redeems his people, puts them back. They're literally, they're not just saying that to be hyperbolic or like to bring some kind of poetic license into play here. They're literally asking the question by saying, go do the math, go find another God like this. There is not one that exists. Yeah. And you know, I think, I think that that brings us to a good, a good transition point to start talking about sanctification and glorification, because as we said, you know, this, this ordo salutis model of like this, these, these discrete steps, it's a kind of a necessary frailty of humanity that we have to kind of break things up. But what we're really talking about when we talk about this Ordo Salutis is the new life that the Spirit creates, right? It's not as though he, like, takes someone who's kind of sick and makes them feel better, but he creates new life. And then that new life just does what new life does. And in the life of a Christian, uh, that new life 
once it the first sort of the first act of new life, if you want to phrase it that way, is faith, right? God right. creates this new this new life. That new life trusts in Jesus Christ as its first act, and then because of that trust in Jesus Christ, it's it's united to Jesus. It becomes one with Jesus, and then all of the benefits which Jesus merited in his life, death, and resurrection, all of those then flow from that. So we've talked about justification, but sanctification itself really is just the new life working itself out. It's not mm-hmm. justification working itself out, right? That's the Lutheran view that sanctification, I think it was Gerhard Ford. I'm not, maybe I'm wrong. Don't quote me on that. But basically there's a Lutheran scholar who said sanctification is just getting used to your justification. It's getting yeah, used to well your said. new status, which, which isn't, it's not right, right? It's, it's not like sanctification is more than just getting right. used to a new state of affairs. It's the new life that is yours right. expressing itself. And so you know, one of the things that I've I've been thinking about, you know, there's all this news about the vaccine and efficacy and, and whether it's going to work. And one of the things that I've been thinking about, I don't know if I did this on purpose or if it just came up. We talk about vaccines in terms of their efficacy, right? If, if this vaccine doesn't actually keep you from getting coronavirus, it's not a very good vaccine. Now, I get it. Yeah, there's somebody out there that's like, well, not all vaccines keep you. Some of them just are trying to make you not have symptoms. <laughs> I get it. But broadly speaking, when we think of a vaccine, what we're thinking of is it's a protection against actually getting sick and being in, afflicted with right. a particular uh, pathogen. And one of the things that is is interesting to me is to compare that to our understanding of perseverance of the saints, because that's intimately involved with our understanding of sanctification. Perseverance of the saints is really just a corollary to say God actually accomplishes sanctification. He -hmm. actually accomplishes what he says he's going to do. And so it's not quite right to say that like justification is like a vaccination against sin, but in a sense, this new life that God gives us is a vaccination against death. And if we could receive this vaccination against death, being the work of the Holy Spirit, that, that's what this vaccination is, is that he protects and preserves us. He empowers us to live a new life. If we could receive that vaccination and still fall away from that and still die, then that would be a not, not an effective vaccination. Right. So, so this corollary of sanctification which you and I have been very specific on sanctification is something that God does to us. And there are real consequences in terms of good works that result from it. And those consequences are so intimately connected with the, the fact of sanctification that if those consequences don't exist being good works specifically, that there's a really good reason to think that sanctification itself doesn't exist. But strictly speaking, my good works do not sanctify me. My good works don't make me holy any more than they made me righteous. And that's really, really important. But at the same time, if we say this infusion of new life that the Holy Spirit gives us could somehow still result in us dying eternal death, then what we've done is we've said the Holy Spirit is not competent to do the job that he set out to do. He's not competent to apply the salvation which Christ redeemed. We've we've got all of these Trinitarian uh, issues now where the will of the Father is different than the will of the Son because the Father only elected some, and the but the Son died for everybody, and but right. the Holy Spirit applies the, the work of the Son only to some, even though the Son wants it, it. It gets to be a, quite a mess. But we have to remember sanctification is something that the Holy Spirit affects in us. It's something that he does to us. And the Holy Spirit is competent to do that, right? God is faithful to finish the good work of of sanctification, which he started in us in our regeneration and justification. Because it's not 
it's not us, right? It's the Lord who wills and works in us. Right. So that we might will and work to do good works. Right. So we have to we have to always ground. And this is why theologians talk about sanctification. You know, it's it's not necessarily the case that we call the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit because the Spirit is holy. That's true. But the reason we call the Holy Spirit, or one of the chief reasons we call the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit, is because he's the spirit of holiness. He's the one who makes us holy. It's not just a description of the status of the Spirit. It's a right. description of the work of the Spirit. He's the Spirit who makes us holy, so we call him the Holy Spirit. So sanctification, uh, as we said, it's not as though the Holy Spirit is not active in these other ways. Uh, but the Holy Spirit is chiefly attributed with the work of sanctification. Um, and that that's really important as we understand the Holy Spirit to land that, because it, it does shape... Even, even something like this threefold uh, rubric that we use of, you know, the Father decrees, the Son accomplishes, the Spirit applies. Sanctification is, in a sense, salvation applied. Right. It's, it's you know, the, the justification is kind of salvation accomplished in one sense, and sa- uh, sanctification ends up being sort of the application of, of salvation to our lives, to us as people. It's what transforms us, it's what changes us. It's what makes us look more like Jesus. Justification doesn't make us look like Jesus. It gives us the status of Jesus. Right. Sanctification not only gives us the status of Jesus— it makes us look like Jesus. It transforms us into his image, not just into his legal status, which is what right. is accomplished in justification. Yeah, that's important. I think part of that, that's why Christ says that he's come to bring abundant life. He's earning that life, but the application, the ability to walk into, so to speak, the stream of abundant life happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. Right. And I like what you're saying. I, this just gets me excited because I think that this is what we often just fail to remember is that even Paul clearly need to make that differentiation and to remind people because he says, having begun in the Holy Spirit, have you so far moved away from the Holy Spirit and just your daily walking and your living out and your manifestation of life and living? Have you forgotten that the power that brought you into that stream is the same one that holds you in there. And so I think we need to remember that when we speak about the grace of God, the grace, that word literally means like divine power, ability from another source that comes to us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So we ought to, I think, just lean into this truth that as we try to walk in a way that's consistent as we try to understand the scriptures with fidelity to what they actually mean, that unless we're actually praying and relying on the Holy Spirit, then we're actually not really walking in a way that is consistent with what it means to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ, because he modeled that that's the way in which he lived when he spent his time walking among us. And so we really ought to be particular with that. We ought to spend time worshiping God and then trying to uh, not trying to, but requesting that the Holy Spirit fill us for the purposes of being more sanctified. It's not as if if we learn enough stuff and then if we push it forward with enough effort that we're going to accomplish things, we should just agree, which I think is what we're trying to say here, is that you can't do any of this Christian walk. You can't actually be a Christian tomorrow or today without what Jesus has done for you and without what which the Holy Spirit has applied onto your life. The minute he stops applying it is the minute you cease to be a Christian. Right. And we know we like to say tongue in cheek, well, like if you could lose your salvation, you, you could. That right. is also true. 
But I think what's the, the corollary is also equally significant. And that is you can't go out tomorrow and be patient or kind or anything else. That's a fruit of the spirit without the Holy spirit actually doing the work on your behalf and applying it for right. you. Now there is a submission that happens there, but we shouldn't get it twisted and think that, well, we're accomplishing something great in partnership with the Holy spirit. That's right. not the way this works. Like God, if he is, able to hold us. It happens because Jesus Christ earned it and because the Holy Spirit applies it even this very second. When either of those things break down or we try to take responsibility, even in part for any one of those things, then what we're going to find is if we could actually take responsibility, the whole thing would fall apart and that we wouldn't actually be a Christian. You cannot be a Christian without this beautiful chain and the work of God through the economy of the Trinity. Yeah. Yeah. So the last kind of portion of the the ordo salutis to talk about is glorification and glorification is one of those um it's one of those words that i think we all use but but very infrequently do we actually define it right it's kind of like augustine said if you ask me what time is i know what it means but if you ask me to define it i'm at a loss for words that's probably not the actual quote but it's something like that (laughs) it's close that's good i think glorification is kind of like that right we have this sense in our heads well, glorification is like what happens, it's sort of what happens when we get to heaven, but then it, it, it's maybe in more of a sense is what happens when we're resurrected. You know, we talk about like, well, the glorification of Christ, glorification specifically in terms of, of reformed theology, glorification is what happens upon the resurrection. So there is a sense which it's true to say that once we die and our spirits go to be with Jesus, that we are, we sort of pass into a state of glory, Right. But the the true glorification of humanity is in the reunited, glorified body and soul of believers. And and that's important because one of the things that is connected with the work of the Holy Spirit in the scriptures, specifically in reference to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, And that's one of the hard things is that we don't often think about, we mentioned this before, the resurrection in the scriptures is not primarily attributed to the to the agency of the sun, right? There, there. Like I said, there are some passages where it talks about the sun lays down his life, he takes it back up again. That's we're not saying that the sun is not involved in the resurrection, but predominantly in the scriptures, the language used uh, of Christ in the resurrect in reference to the resurrection is passive language. Christ right. was raised, and when we look at Romans, I think it's chapter ten, uh, might be chapter eight, but but when we look at at the book of Romans, it's the specific agency or the specific power of resurrection is the Father working through the Spirit. Right. This is one of the few places in the scripture where it actually talks about the Holy Spirit in terms of being a power. Right. And so when we think about glorification, glorification is kind of the terminal point of sanctification. It's where that new life that we've been talking about kind of reaches its fullest expression and then stays in that state for all eternity. And that involves not only the transformation of our spirits, the the moral quality and the spiritual quality of our spirits into a greater degree of affinity and a greater degree of representation of Jesus Christ, but it involves in some sense, and and this is a mysterious sense, even Paul kind of says, like, we don't really know exactly what it's going to be like. It involves the transformation of our bodies in a way that is mysterious still. And so the Holy Spirit in scripture is the one who's given this 
role or given this agency in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that by extension now becomes an agency in the general resurrection of the dead of those who are raised to glory, right? So the, the, uh, Westminster catechism, the shorter catechism says, um, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? It says the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do pass immediately into glory, right? So we're saying that there is truth to the idea that that the, the soul in heaven apart from its body is still glorified or it passes into glory. But then 30, question 38 says, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? It says at the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be made, uh, shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. So when we, we look at this, this is one of those things, I'm going to get hate mail for this. One of the things that the Roman Catholics get right in their reflection of purgatory is that nothing unholy will ever be allowed permanently into the presence of God, right? They get that right. The how of how that thing is made perfect, they get as wrong as you possibly can. But the fact is that the eternal enjoying of God not only is tied to glory, to our own glorification, right? There's a sense that we, we become glorified in that enjoyment, uh, it's in first John, I think, where it says we will see him. And because we see him, we will be transformed. Uh, Mark Jones has this brilliant connection. I think he probably stole yeah. it from Red Boots Owen, but he has this brilliant <laughs> connection about the reason we don't want to have images of Christ is because it's this sort of like attempt to cheat and bring the right. beatific forward yep. in time, beatific vision forward in time. But it's also the case that our glorification, which is in another sense, simply the the completion of our sanctification, we can't see God until that's already complete. So all of these things are tied up and the scripture connects that with resurrection. And because of that connection with resurrection, it's sort of, and, and the connection with sanctification, it's sort of especially placed in the wheelhouse of the Holy Spirit. Right. Right. That's, there's really not much to add to that. I think that's beautiful. I mean, really... Glorification is this final step. It's the zenith of this entire process. It's what we look forward to, and we have a taste of it, even as Paul talks about moving from glory to glory. There's something in us that senses that that is the final destination and gives us great hope, actually, that this will all be taken away and that, you know, all these kind of like nonsensical arguments about, well, how do I know why I won't sin in heaven is because of glorification, because there's a complete. a complete completion. Like at death, God completes our sanctification. So he removes all of our sins from our hearts and makes us perfectly holy. But even though our sanctification is complete at death, our salvation is not yet complete because we are still without our glorified resurrected bodies. And that process of glorification brings everything into perfect completion. Like that's going to be an amazing culmination of God's work. I can't, I can't imagine Certainly those who are loved ones who have departed to be with the Lord are even now, of course, worshiping at his throne. But this special moment when everything is made manifest and complete, where really truly, you know, the the valleys are raised up and the hills are made low and everything is brought back together, together, together again in consummate harmony. There's going to be, I think, a special type of worship and appreciation in that moment because it'll be... The moment in time, not only where we will sense like, like it'll be that great sigh, like awe is, all is well, finally, like yeah. the Sabbath is completely here. And then beyond that, it'll also be this full appreciation for 
God who promised this has made it so. And that everything we're talking about is still in anticipation of that beautiful promise. And that's where glorification will bring all these things together finally. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think to sort of sum up this whole series, right? If you were to rename this series something less cumbersome than the role of the Holy Spirit in the hour to like, if you were to name it something, <laughs> the, the, the end name of this is the Holy Spirit does it all. Right. Yeah. Because, well, well, because well the, the, to go back to Bobbing's three categories, right? The preparation, when we think about prep, preparatory grace, we are not talking about prevenient grace or preparationism. We're not talking Get about that those out things. of here. What we're talking about is the Holy Spirit resurrecting the dead. Right. right. And and that resurrection of the dead starts before we die the first death. Right. It starts while we still live in this world. And that resurrection life, which the Holy Spirit gives us, that first act of resurrection life is to cling to Jesus Christ. And and if you I don't know if you caught it, but I caught it when I was reading it. Bobbing makes the point it isn't some me- mechanistic puppeting that's happening. Right. He says that the preparation is so that we of our own accord will come to Jesus Christ. Right. So so it's it's literally taking a dead corpse in the grave and saying, Lazarus, come forth. Right. Mm-hmm. So although I, I think sometimes reformed people can go a little bit too far and actually almost kind of allegorize the Lazarus account in almost like an Eastern Orthodox way, um, it's true that it's a it's a beautiful sort of like lived out parable for how salvation works. Right. We're, we're this dead, stinking, rotten corpse wrapped up in grave clothes in the grave with not only that, but but there's this giant boulder that we can't possibly remove. Even if we somehow right. were able to muster up the strength to get out of the grave, we still have to push this giant boulder out of the way. And we just can't do that. And so it's not until the Holy Spirit says, come forth, come out that we finally have new life. Our lungs fill up the, the odor of death departs from us. One thing that I think is really interesting, um, and I, I may be reading too much into this. This is one of those areas of speculation that I wouldn't put any weight on. I I used to be, uh, when I was in this big Lutheran megachurch in, um, in uh, Minnesota, they did this big passion play every year. It was like 500 people in the thing. And there was like camels and Jesus descending from the ceiling on like wires and a harness. And obviously, like, I don't want you to imagine any of that. But one of the scenes that was always really powerful for me is the Lazarus scene. And every movie I've ever seen that has a Lazarus scene, when they open the um, when they open the, the tomb, there's like this puff of air that comes out. And one of the things that I think is interesting, it's kind of one of those silences that I think speaks really loudly in the, the scriptures. There's no mention of an odor. There doesn't seem to be any response to the odor that everyone knew would have been there. And, mm-hmm. and obviously like the scripture is silent. I'm not making any large theological points on this, right. but one of the things that's true is that even though we are not sanctified perfectly upon our justification and our, our initial sanctification, that odor of death is no longer there because we now have new life. And so I like I like to think that not only was the miracle of Lazarus' resurrection or his being raised from the grave, not only was it a miracle of bringing new life, but it was also a miracle of sweeping away that odor of death. Right. Whether that's a literal odor of death or whether it's it's sort of the the weight of death that was resting on his family, all of that was swept away. And in our salvation, the Holy Spirit once for all definitively 
takes that death away. And right. and this is this was a beautiful thing. And I'm, I'm probably gonna probably gonna tear up a little bit. My my dad died several years ago uh, in 2015, and I had the honor of preaching the funeral sermon. And one of the things, um, one of the things that was so uh, striking to me, and I preached this passage out of Lazarus, um, is just the weight of it, right? Everybody's there. Even, even the Jews who are there that, that eventually, uh, kind of betray Jesus and go rat him out to the Pharisees. All of that is swept away. You don't hear anything about mourning or grieving or anything after that. Right. It's just gone. And and there's a, a phrase in, that passage that's really hard to translate into English. And it, it, it gets translated in English, basically like uh, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Right. But the Greek actually says something closer to whoever lives and believes in me will never die forever. Mm. And that's, that's our salvation, right? That we, we, that uh, specter of eternal death that rests over all of us prior to prior to coming to Jesus Christ, that specter of death is gone forever. And right. and what we've learned in this series is that it is the Father who decided in eternity past that His people will never have to fear death. They will never ever be dominated by death, in the eternal sense. And it was the Son who battled death and overcame it and and took it away. And it's now the Holy Spirit who brings us and leads us into that new life. He's the one that right. applies that state of reality to us right. such that we will never die death forever. And that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Right. I agree with you. It's this idea that regeneration is more, but it's certainly not less than, of course, the quickening of the natural man from death to spiritual life. And that's why I don't mean this in a trite way. Every Christian is a miracle. We, we say that often. And what we mean is just something, well, there's something spiritual about being a Christian. But what we actually mean is that no person should be able to be one. And so apart from the work of God in his son and what he accomplished, and then in the Holy Spirit's application, no Christian should actually exist because yeah. we are enemies, enemies of God. We are enmity with him. And even while we were in that state, he sent his son to die for us and then gave us the Holy Spirit as that great comforter and that great helpful uh, counselor for us. And so it's also the consequences of this new life in the way of faith, repentance, justification, adopt- adoption, sanctification, preservation, glorification, all that comes by the work of the Holy Spirit. And to kind of just, I think, try to come alongside of what you just said, the greatness of God in our lives is not just that he would demonstrate his power in that initial saving, but would consistently apply it into our lives and give us access to it every single day until we go to meet with him. And so I think of, by way of just application for the everyday life, 1 John 1, 9, this beautiful verse, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Now we could stop it right there. And that by itself would be beautiful. Also the notice like this quality of God is faithful through his promises in the right. application of those promises, but he's also just. So there is both the forensic. And then you see, I think in the faithfulness, this idea that, like you said, he never leaves us and forsakes us. He is consistent in the application of that to transform us beyond just what would be a status change. Because the status change is just to say he forgives the sins, but the end reads, and 
to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yeah. Like it's a great thing to be said, you're no longer guilty. It's a better thing to be said, you are now righteous because yeah. just being, having the punishment taken away does not make you righteous. So the fact that the Holy Spirit comes and applies righteousness onto our lives is the best of all things to be now to receive amnesty and to also then receive righteousness. Yeah. So good, right? These, these, things are, these things are both so good, and that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. You know, Jesse, I just want to run through a wall right now. <laughs> With my God, I could leap over a wall. I, I'm being a little facetious, but, but honestly, like, it feels, it's not about my feelings, but it feels good to bring the Holy Spirit back to the center of yes things and and to the center to to have the center of gravity of our salvation not exclude the holy spirit which it so often does um i just i'm just really glad that we did this series because i've i've learned i think a lot and just grown a lot even just just in the reflection of this just in thinking yeah. about it in a, in a more concentrated fashion um i think that it's been a really just a good series to sort of like take a break pause and say like let's let's in some senses let's just get back to basics let's just get back right. to the confession that salvation is from the lord and that doesn't exclude the yes. holy spirit like that's a huge that's a huge point that i think a lot of us would benefit from thinking about more is that the fact that salvation is from the lord means that it's from the lord and the giver of life too not just the father and not just the son Right. I agree with you. And, and I think just, I know what you're saying. So lest anybody get confused about things I've said, and you've said over the course of this, I think what we're trying to do is focus our minds on how the Holy Spirit is at the center. We don't right. need to bring him back to any of that because right. he is always present. But it's, I think this is hopefully the benefit of, I hope people have conversations about this kind of thing with their friends and loved ones all over the place. This is why God gives us the opportunity to speak about these things. So we might meditate on them as we go to the scriptures and then realign our priorities and our thinking yeah. in the proper yeah. way. And I think that's what we're trying to do. I, I've definitely been convicted as we've talked, not just today, but over the last several weeks, that there's so much that I underappreciate. Again, the Holy Spirit's in a bear market in my own life. And I think generally among Christians, and we really need to go to him and seek out his influence and his counsel in our lives that is both profound and totally predominant because yeah. we just need more of, I, let me say it this way. I need more of the application of what Christ has done and I know who to go to for that. Yes. So I, I just need to go to, I just need to go to that place. I really yeah. need to request that and really start living in a way that's worthy of the calling to which I've been called to quote Paul. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think that we probably could keep going on this, but uh, time does keep slipping away or, in the words of my close <laughs> personal friend, I knew Michael you were going to say this. Time keeps on ticking, ticking, ticking into ticking the future. Away. Yeah, ticking away. Um, so I wanted to announce we've kind of teased at this a little bit, but we have selected a new book for our next book club. We are going to start it uh, in the new year. We'll announce an official start date uh, probably on next week's episode. But we have selected the book Reset. Uh, by David Murray, and uh, you can get this anywhere you want. Uh, it's available on on ebook. Jesse and I are, are reading through the ebook, so we'll, that when we reference page numbers or location numbers or whatever, that's what we're referencing. Um, but this is a book that I think you know. There's this strange paradox that's going on where we're all spending so much more time at home, but right. we're now filling all of our time at home with other stuff even more than we ever have. 
Um, you know, the desk that I sit at right now while I record this is the same desk that I sit at when I read my morning devotions, that I sit at when I work for my work at the hospital. Uh, so our lives, even though in some ways our lives are becoming a, a little simpler because we're working from home more often, and that's likely to continue, uh, you know, even after coronavirus is more or less a thing of the past. But this book is a book that he wrote coming out of a season of burnout in his own life. Right. Uh, it's intensely practical. In many ways, uh, David Murray, uh, he writes like a Puritan. So each each chapter is kind of its own practical step. So we're excited to do this book. We're going to try to do three chapters a month. So three, three episodes a month. And then we'll leave a, a fourth or sometimes fifth uh, episode of the month for kind of grab bag stuff. Um, so you can pick up the book. It's very affordable. I'm excited. I'm excited to work through this book. I'm stoked too. And it's, we've picked some larger works in the past. So yes. We wanted to get this in the kind of the right kind of length and it's 208 pages. And the reason why we're saying this so far ahead time is because we really want people to buy the book right. and come along with us in the journey. I know that that's not always easy and people have different time commitments. So we've tried to choose something that besides just listening to our silly little voices, talk about the book that you would also read it as well. Right. And maybe invite some others into the midst of reading it. And we're going to start in the new year. So if you're into kind of turning over a new leaf or getting yourself prepared on the right foot for a new year, I think this is actually a really great book to do that. Yeah. And, and you know, Murray, he, he mixes the theological and the practical in this book. I have, Obviously, I haven't read it yet, but I've read enough of it to know. And just listening to David Murray in general, he weaves the practical and the theological and the scriptural. He weaves all those things together so seamlessly that it really is the fruit of a life of ministry. And this is, this is what we talk about when we talk about Puritan application of scripture is it's not, you know, coming out of the reform preaching series. One of the things that we kind of both came to the realization of is that we shouldn't be allergic to application as long as it's application that's actually biblical application. And this is Murray's way of doing that to a problem that frankly, I think all of us in this, this sort of modern age, we all face burnout. We all, we all live with our digital devices strapped to our hands. We all sit in front of our computer all day. There's always a list of, of things going on. We're always behind. There's always more to read. There's always more to do. So I'm looking forward to this book, uh, just being, let me, let me go full in on the pun. I'm looking forward to resetting (laughs) by reading the book reset by David Murray. Well done. And and just to like kind of tease just to whet people's appetites. I want to, he has a clever way of the way in which he's titled these 10 chapters. I'm just going to run through them really quickly with the, cause they're just one word titles, but see if this appeals to you. See if even these words pique your interest, because if you're like me, a lot of these, are, I just want to say, I want to understand what he means. So reality check, review, rest, recreate, relax, rethink, reduce, refuel, relate, resurrection. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Interested stuff. yet? Get the book. <laughs> yes. So check it out. Uh, we'll announce an official start date uh, as best as we can figure out. Uh, we'll announce that next week. That'll give you lots of time to pick up the book uh, to get started on it. Um, and, you know, in, in case you're listening to this, in case you haven't been with us through the Reform Preaching series, this is not a uh, not going to be a page by page analysis of the book. Right. right. We, we're going to read the chapters. We're going to take as much practical uh, guidance of it. And then we're probably going to talk about something only tangentially related because <laughs> that's how we roll on the Reform Brotherhood. But uh, I'm excited. I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to working through this book with you. And one of the things I might just finally add is this might be a good excuse 
to get some other people in your own life to read this with you. And the nice thing about a book club is it's great if you can do it in person, but it's also pretty good if you can't do it in person. So this is a great excuse to have some, maybe some weekly time or monthly time or biweekly time with some loved ones either near you or across the country or around the world to set an excuse to get on Zoom and talk about something that you've read together. So don't just do it because of us. We'd love for you to join us in it, but also push it out a little bit. And actually, yeah. we'd love to hear if you do that because it's just so good to hear of Christians gathering around a resource and processing it and seeing what God is is offering to them in the way of having a communal experience where they're interested in studying him him and worshiping him and in trying to come align their lives more closely what he has for them. Yes. You know, Jesse, if there's one criticism of this book that I'm going to preemptively have is that there's no chapter on how to uh, end a podcast. Cause I really <laughs> we don't feel, do that. Well, I really feel like we could use some practical advice on how to do that. Yeah, so. we don't do that. Well, you know, here's what's interesting and uh, I'm just going to push this forward and delay our ending even more, but you would think that as we did this more, we get better at the ending. I found that the more episodes we do, the more excitable we become, the yeah. more we have to talk about, the less equipped we are to actually shut the thing down on any given day. Yeah, I do still think that we're like the Lord of the... This is like Peter Jackson in The Lord of the Rings <laughs> and like Return of the King. We're like, he'd been working on this movie for so long, he just wasn't ready to let it go. Yes. He's had like six or seven endings. Every episode. Yeah. That would be great if we release like choose your own ending to this episode 217. <laughs> Seven different options for how you might like this to end. Yeah. The funny part is that there probably could have been like three or more other endings to the return of the king that Peter Jackson didn't even do. So for sure. But, I really thought you were going to say to this episode, like 20 minutes ago, we could have just ended yeah. this. <laughs> There's only one ending to this episode, Jesse. And in light of that one ending, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.